0: Hello and welcome to episode 72 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Dr. James Kirstead, Senior Lecturer in Classics at the Victoria University of Wellington. We'll be asking James what democracy meant in ancient Athens, just how bad ostracism could be in a world before refugee conventions, and perhaps most importantly of all, what have the ancient Greeks ever done for us? James Kirstead, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Look, just how did democracy work in ancient Athens?
1: Okay, so the basic structure is that you have a a council and an assembly. It's the same basic structure in a lot of Greek city-states, including Athens, and the council is allotted. So in Athens, they have a council of 500 representatives, 500 men, male citizens, and they're chosen by law. They're chosen randomly from the citizen population. And that council of 500 uh, has agenda control. So it makes business for the assembly. And the citizens assembly is the real sovereign institution of the state. The citizen assembly takes place on a hill called the Pnyx. And anybody can come. Again, any male citizen uh, over the age of 18 can come to the Pnyx. And they will vote directly on policies. They'll vote by raising their hands with the Greeks called um, they listen to speeches, people can go up onto the Bama, the speaker's platform, and um, they'll vote on, you know, the policies of the day. And it's, it's really serious stuff. I mean, it's whether you go to war with Sparta, whether you fight against Persia, um, anything, you know, uh, how much money you want to give to the gods uh, this this year. Um, and they'll have one of these meetings pretty much every week, and they'll have a special, uh, a more important assembly about once a month. So these meetings are happen, happening quite often. and. Uh, there were about 6,000 people that come to these assembly meetings. In the fifth century, uh, the first century of Athenian democracy, they, they struggled to get those numbers, but it seems like in the fourth, they introduced pay uh, for people to, to come to enable sort of poor men to turn up to the assembly. And then they were regularly getting around 6,000 people. They remodeled the pinnix the hill that these meetings were on, so that they knew that if it was full, there would be about 6,000 men there. Um, and yeah, that's the, that's the basic structure of the system all the way through the fifth century BC and pretty much the whole fourth century BC. Now there are other institutions too. Uh, they also have magistrates, so city officials They have about 700 domestic magistrates in Athens itself. Some more when Athens has an empire are abroad and uh, about 600 of these magistrates of these officials are selected again by lot. They're selected randomly from the citizen population and only about a hundred of them are are elected. The the Athenians actually saw election as a more aristocratic mechanism because if you were running for election, you could be charismatic, uh, good looking, you could be rich, you could could be from a noble family, and that would give you an advantage. So the radical Democrats of ancient ancient Greece actually saw sortition uh, uh, selection by law as a more democratic mechanism. And that's why they also used it in in a fourth very important institution and that is uh, jury courts. So, so courts were allotted mass juries of 501, 201, 401 people, depending on the type of, of case. That, that, that's the system that uh, condemned Socrates to death notoriously in 399 BC. Uh, and then finally, you have, uh, the final institution, which was really important in Athens, and they had it in some other city-states too, was ostracism. And ostracism is a system where you actually have a vote at a certain point during the year on the PNICs, where the assembly is held, and that vote is, shall we have an ostracism this year? Do we need to? Uh, and you know, the question, do we need to, is often around, is there someone who's pissing us off? Or, or even, are there two people who are at loggerheads? Are there two elite politicians that, that might sort of undermine the state, undermine the democracy if things get too heated? And if you decide, yeah, I think, you know, I feel ostracism, ostracism coming on this year, you then go down into the Agora, the sort of town square of Athens. And then you literally just write the name on a shirt of pottery, the, the shirt, a little bit of pottery, in Greek is called an ostracon. and That's where we get the word ostracism. And so you write, you know, Salvatore or, or James, or <laughs> no offense, or whatever politician. I mean, students often quite like this because they immediately start thinking of politicians they want to exile. And, and, and the, the, whoever gets the most names on the shirts of pottery, that person, that man will be uh, ostracized. And that means that they're exiled from Athens for 10 years. It's not a legal uh, punishment. It's, it's not that they've been found guilty of anything. It's just a political mechanism. You get to keep your property. You get to keep your citizenship rights. You go abroad, and then after 10 years, you can come back, and you can start again, and you're, you're completely in, in good standing in the community. So those, are the five, so those are the five big institutions, the council, a lot of council 500, the assembly of citizens, um, the jury courts, and the ostracism, I, I missed one out. Uh, magistrates, the city officials.
0: I really like the idea of getting to vote on how much we should give to the gods every year. (laughs) It seems like a uh, a very useful sort of thing to get to vote on. Uh, Look, you've given us a lot of the how of democracy. You've given us even a little bit of the when. Let me ask you about the where. Are, Are we primarily talking about ancient Athens, one city state, or are we talking about a broader institution found throughout Greece?
1: We're talking about a broader institution found throughout Greece. Um, and a lot, so a lot of city-states had democracy. The problem is we don't know exactly how many and when, or, or at least it's a little bit difficult to uh, piece together the evidence to show where democracy was and when. Luckily, there's been a very good scholar at the University of Indiana, Eric Robinson, who spent a lot of his career looking deeply at the evidence and trying to tease it out. And he's come to the conclusion that even before Athens became democratic, there were probably other Greek city-states. Uh, Argos, for example, um, that were democratic in the sixth century BC, so the 500 BC, a handful of them, maybe a dozen. And then once we get into the classical period, there's a bit of a democracy boom. And we have evidence Robinson thinks for between 30 and 50, let's say, um, at different points of time, you know, city states move into democracy, and they also move out of it, there are oligarchic revolts, and so on and so forth. And then once you get into the Hellenistic period, and this is uh, going into the period when Macedonia starts to dominate the Greek world, um, it's it's a weird paradox that demokratia, the word for democracy, it becomes something that a lot of Greek city-states want to claim. So just as Alexander is basically taking over the world and and even after his empire collapses, you have these big powerful Greek kingdoms. um, It's in that period that a lot of the Greek city-states start saying, no, 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 we're, we're a democracy. And then there's a debate about, well, how seriously do we take that? If you look, you look internally at these city-states, they have a very vibrant civic life. They're voting on you know, religious matters and taxation. The thing that they're limited in, in that period, is foreign policy, either because even though they're nominally independent, the Greek kingdoms are just much bigger, or because they're actually literally in the territory of a, of a kingdom, and that obviously limits their freedom in, in, in several ways. Uh, but basically, you know, the, there are city-states which keep calling themselves d- democratiei, democracies, and in, in well into the
0: Hellenistic period. And it's only really in the Roman period and, and, and later, really, that that starts to completely disappear. So when you describe the institutions of ancient Athenian democracy, can we automatically extrapolate those to other Greek democracies? That is, were these, did you describe for us ancient Greek democracy or something very specific and maybe very different called Athenian democracy?
1: That's a good question. And again, it depends on the evidence. We don't know that much about how democracy worked in other city states, but there's some, because the evidence, there's so much more evidence from Athens than anywhere else, but there's some tantalizing glimpses. And, And basically the picture is that, the picture that I gave you there was Athens. Um, it seems like other Greek city-states that were democracies had similar institutions. They definitely would have had allotment, allotted officials, and allotted council. They definitely would have had a citizens' assembly. Some of the other things, uh, such as allotted uh, juries and especially ostracism, they weren't always a presence, as far as we can tell. But as I said, they did have uh, a version of ostracism in some other places. So Syracuse, for example, a huge Greek c- city-state in Sicily, they had a system called petalism we read about this in text, and it's very fortunate that we do because petalism is a system where you write the name of the people that you want to get rid of on olive leaves. And the problem with that is that olive leaves uh, don't remain for us archaeologically in the very convenient way that sherds of pottery uh, do. So we don't have any, we have lots of surviving sherds from Athens with the, na- which, with the names of politicians on them. Very interesting. Themistocles, Pericles, all these big hitters. We can tell people either succeeded in ostracizing them or, try, or tried to. With Syracuse, we don't have that evidence, but we know that we're doing something similar.
0: We do have a question from the audience already, and uh, this is a live show. The reason we do it live is so that we can have interaction between our audience and our guests. I think we're the only live show being done in Australia on current events that takes audience questions. Um, Real audience questions, not placed ones like the ABC perhaps. We have a question for Christopher. Um, Did ancient democracy... Have any mechanism implying or, or ensuring tolerance for dissenting views?
1: That's a very, that's a very tough one. Uh, th- there's a big debate about how liberal democratic Athens was. And again, Athens is really the only city-state that we can look at in enough detail to try and answer some, some of these questions. And you know, the big black mark against Athenian democracy is the execution of Socrates. Um, you know, and they were, he was indicted for uh, introducing false gods and corrupting the youth but it seems like he sort of pissed them off by being so anti-democratic, or at least if if the views that Plato attributes to him are anything to go by, he was quite anti-democratic. He was hanging out with people like Critias who were involved in the 30 Tyrants, which was a short-lived oligarchic regime in 404 and 403. So they definitely killed Socrates and that probably had something to do with his views. so that's a bad sign. However, it doesn't seem like that was typical. It seems like that was quite rare. Uh, now, it used, to, it used to be said that there were these other, all these other examples of impiety trials, but there have been several uh, reviews, one in the 70s, one quite recently, where scholars would look through all the evidence, and it seems like a lot of these are just gossip. They're sort of late antique gossip about, oh yeah, they, they prosecuted this philosopher for saying that the sun was a burning rock in the sky. If you look at the actual evidence from the 5th century BC, no, those stories don't really hold up. So I think on the whole, Athens was, by the standards of, of its time, pretty tolerant. Uh, Socrates was an exception, it's a big exception, but it was, it was really just an exception.
0: Well, some of us today would still say the sun is a burning rock in the sky, nothing wrong with that. Uh, we, have the, we have a question uh, about, and this is the, the usual question, I'm sure you have a, a rehearsed answer for this. How should we understand democracy in a world where slaves and women were not citizens?
1: Yeah, well, that's a tough one. I mean, I think that um, what we're talking about in Athens in, in terms of the numbers of citizens, citizen males is up to 60,000 in the fifth century BC and maybe 30 or 40,000 in the fourth century BC. So I think that's still you know, a good number of people. And you have to remember by the standards of its time, this is incredibly open and, and progressive and egalitarian. I mean, the other option is the sort of great empires and kingdoms of the, of the Near East. And they're quite hierarchical, they're quite top-down Um, So I think Athens is doing uh, pretty well by that measure. Another thing I would say is that Athenian citizens had a lot of power. They could do a lot. So if you were lucky enough to be a citizen in ancient Athens, you could go to the assembly and vote, as I say, on a weekly basis on major policies facing your city state. You had a chance of being uh, randomly allotted into an office, sometimes quite powerful offices. You could run for election as a general or some of the elective offices. You could speak in the assembly. so uh, they had a lot of power, and you compare that to our societies. We're much better on the demos part of democracy, and we're much better at having an expanded sense of who the people are—an ex- extended franchise. And I think that's completely right. Um, but what do you actually get? That's the question. And you know, Jean Jacques Rousseau famously said, the, 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 "The English are fooling themselves if they think they're free, because really all they have is uh, freedom one day and every four years when they vote for members of parliament." Um, and I think, you know, Russo, that, that, that view actually has something to say, say for it. We, we really don't have uh, that much kratos. We don't have that much power. The people nowadays don't have as much power as they would have in the ancient world.
0: I want to ask you about the kratos, but let me first press you a little more on the demos. Uh, you, you said that, you know, you know, citizens in ancient Athens and other ancient democracies had a lot of rights. What kind of responsibilities did citizenship entail?
1: Well, um, you, you weren't obligated to take part in the democratic machinery. It seems that that was always on a volunteer basis. I've read recently about a, a radical democratic Swiss canton in the early modern period, where they would actually forcibly allot offices. They would say, Salvatore, you're doing this office whether you want to or not. The Athenians, the Athenians never actually did that. But there was a general sense in the civic culture that you, it, was, it was a good thing to contribute. And especially if you were a rich man, if you didn't contribute, you could be in a whole world of trouble. And we know this from the, from the legal speeches. We have to, uh, surviving courtroom speeches. And it seems like the number one go-to argument if you're a rich guy and you get into trouble is to, is to say, even though nowadays it might seem to be kind of irrelevant, is to say, I helped the city-state. I donated all this stuff. I helped pay for a warship. I helped pay for a chorus in the in tragic festival. And it seems like those arguments actually had a, a, a lot of purchase. So, um, so I think that, you know, especially the, the wealthy, it was in their interest to contribute. And uh, for other people also, there was, there was an ideology of, you know, the Athenians worked together, they were demos. And I mean, a lot of Greek city-states had this sense of citizen solidarity. And this seems to have been built up through smaller associations and citizen subdivisions. The whole citizenry was divided into tribes and demes, which are basically village units. And so people seem to have had quite a strong sense of togetherness as a community.
0: Um, Let me give a quick shout out. Uh, We have uh, people in the chat talking, uh, Christopher, Anthony, Rosalind, Winton. Winton actually has a question for you and uh, it's maybe a little too technical for me, but I think it's right up your alley. (laughs) It is according to Plato's account, Socrates didn't defend his right to free speech at his trial. He just argued that he was honest and not deceitful. Do you think that was significant?
1: Yes, I think that the way that's, well, if we can believe Plato's account of Socrates' defense speech, which is a question itself because Plato wanted to depict his teacher in the best possible light. And in a certain way, he wanted to, Plato wanted to depict his, his teacher as a pure philosopher who didn't really know what he was doing. And he got in trouble just because, you know, the people didn't understand him. Okay, if we, if we can uh, believe that, the way that Socrates argued in his defense speech was crazy, uh, idiotic I- even, uh, maybe noble and high-minded, but in terms of legal strategy, it didn't get him anywhere <laughs> as can be seen. And, um, and I think that's one of the things you have to bear, bear in mind when you say, well, the Athenians executed Socrates. I mean, in a way he gave them no choice because after there were two votes, one about guilt or innocence, and then the other was for sentencing. Even after he's found guilty, they then say, okay, what's your counter plea? Because the prosecution was saying, we wanna have execution as the, as the penalty. And then it was up to Socrates to put forward a, a reasonable counterplea. And, and what he says is, I think I should get free meals for life in the Pritinaeon, which is a building where they would give free meals to Olympic victors. So it was, because he, he, he was saying, well, I'm such a great philosopher and I'm helping you, I'm a gadfly. I'm making people think, so I should get free meals for life. And then you know, he, then he sort of steps back from that and says, OK, well, maybe I'll pay a fine, but I've got lots of rich friends so they can pay the fine for me. So the Athenians are basically given a choice between getting him to pay a fine or him, giving him free meals for life, and on the other hand, execution. And so he's, he's basically kind of insulted the demos at that point. So um, he, he doesn't play his cards uh, very well. And if you believe Plato's account, there may even be a sort of willingness to, to sacrifice himself. I mean, he's quite old when the trial happens. So again, I don't think it's right that the Athenians executed him at all. but uh, <laughs> he kind of helped them along those along along that path
0: while i have a classicist on the line let me in, indulge myself my own curiosity as someone who's seen the sources in the original greek do you is it your gut instinct or maybe your analytical conclusion that plato more or less accurately represented socrates in the apology or do you think that this is a you know Plato Socrates is a tool of Plato's own rhetoric.
1: Um, I think that I think that you know um, Plato is probably writing that only ten or at most twenty years after the events. I mean, we don't really know when Plato wrote wrote his particular dialogues, but something something like that. So people would have had a sense around Athens of what he said. They probably didn't remember it perfectly. But so what I'm saying is Plato had some leeway. He didn't have infinitely way. He probably couldn't have gotten away with writing something, you know, this, this is Socrates' defense speech. He was completely different. But as I, I say, I think he 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 did everything he could to present his teacher in the best possible light. And he clearly had a strategy of how to present Socrates. And his strategy seems to have been Socrates is this kind of absent-minded philosopher and the people just didn't understand him. And he was pissing people off, not because he was really a really bad guy, but just because people get pissed off when you when you try and nail them down on the definitions of moral terms and weird philosophical stuff like that. Uh, and again, you know, he wouldn't have gotten away with that strategy if it was completely wrong, but I think he was definitely milking that uh, for all it's worth. Uh, and you can look at the other sources. I mean, Aristophanes has Socrates in the clouds, and he's seen as just this sort of crazy intellectual, and particularly as a sophist, as one of these intellectuals who was like, you know, kind of mercenary. Um, and so Plato's depiction of him is very very pure
0: and that doesn't seem to have been the way that all the Athenians uh, uh, perceived him. If I remember my Aristophanes correctly uh, his depiction simply had a lot more crap in it than, <laughs> than Plato's depiction.
1: That, that, that's right it's all this sort of meteorological stuff and but it's, it's, it's an interesting window into how I mean we don't even know how most Athenians thought because it's just Aristophanes' jokes but Presumably Aristophanes wrote what he thought people would be in the audience nodding along to and laughing to. Um, It's an interesting window into what, you know, what the sort of common citizen, would have thought about these highfalutin intellectuals that we now sort of revere.
0: Our chat box is going to uh, keep us honest and return us to the topic. Anthony wants to know what were the principles that govern who could be a voting citizen in ancient Greek democracy?
1: Well, you have to be a male citizen Uh, And to be a male citizen, you have to have two Athenian parents. So both of your parents have to be born in Athens, and they have to be free, i.e. not slaves. They have to be Athenians, i.e. not born in uh, the territory of another Greek city state. Uh, And then there's a a little bit of a complicated system. When you do reach majority age, you have to sort of pass through these various gates. You have to be confirmed uh, by your dean, your village unit. There will actually be a vote in your village unit when you come up to 18 years old. And that's then confirmed in some of the central institutions. And it also helps if you're a member of a kinship group. There are kinship groups called fratries. And uh, they would know who your father was. And they would know who your mother was. Your, your father would have introduced your mother to the to the, to the, to the lads, to the club. Um, and uh, there would also have been ceremonies when you were a boy and when you were an adolescent. Um, and that also would have made you known to everybody. So. It, it, It seems really, really complicated. You think, well, why do they do all this? All all the why do they use all these groups and all these ceremonies? And I think it's just because it's hard for us to imagine that nowadays. But they didn't have photography. They didn't have ID cards. They didn't have uh, a system for ascertaining who was who. And so everything was done in this uh, by these social mechanisms. And so it was clearly very important to them to make sure that you were you were real Athenian and that you were descended from Athenians. And so. It, it, Athenian democracy was you know, quite open-minded and liberal for its time, but it, it was very much a state based on the idea of dissent. That was the important thing that you were from Athens and you were sort of an Athenian and you were worshiping the right gods and you respected your parents uh, and you had the right
0: lineage. Do you think that our democracies today are in any meaningful way, the heirs of ancient Greek democracy or is Athenian democracy just a, a brand that we like to you know, pick up and put in our clothes, but in fact, our institutions are completely different. Yeah,
1: I mean, our institutions are pretty different. Um, I wouldn't say it has nothing to do with ancient Greek democracy, but it's very subtle. It's definitely not, you know, there's a a sort of naive or simple view uh, of this where people will say, we're the heirs of ancient Greek democracy. It's not true in any kind of simple sense. It's not true that there was ancient Greek democracy and that just sort of continued on into modern Australian democracy. It's much more complicated than that. And in fact, if you look at uh, you know, even uh, sources within Western culture, the kind of leisure class elites who tend to write history and political theory, they were very down on Athenian democracy for, for a very long time, for the most part. However, uh, it can also be said that when you get into the early modern period and you have some more liberal and democratic thinkers, from John Locke to George Grote, the great Greek historian who was a friend of John Stuart Mill, those guys do seem to look back to ancient Greek democracy and take some sustenance from it, to take some inspiration and also take some arguments. So a lot of the arguments for majority rule and um, the secret ballot, which George Broke tried to push in the British Parliament, because he was an MP as well as a historian. A lot of those ideas did come from the ancient Greeks. So I, I personally think that, you know, the, the coming of democracy in the modern period has a lot more to do with economics than anything else. It has to do with the Industrial Revolution. However, the cultural heritage of the West and of the Greeks, I think, did help them. It helped nudge them into a more democratic space.
0: I'm fond of reminding people that it's not just, quote-unquote, the West that are the heirs of a Greek culture and Greek civilization, but also, much more directly, Orthodox civilization. So we could think of you know, Russia and uh, the, the Balkans as being the heirs of ancient Greek civilization. They're certainly much closer in terms of, you know, language and uh, religion than we are. And then we also have the Islamic world. So we might think of the Muslim Ummah as having a direct institutional connection to ancient Greece. Uh, after all, the areas that went uh, that became Muslim in the seventh uh, century were prior, previous to that were Greek areas. I mean, the Greek the library at Alexandria was Greek. The scholars in Damascus were Greek before they were Arabic. Uh, can we find more ancient Greece in the West than maybe we might find in Moscow or Damascus? um it's a good
1: question i mean uh, it all depends on where you draw the lines with the west i mean i would uh, i know this is controversial but i would still see even eastern orthodoxy as part of the larger west um and uh with muslim civilization i think there's a lot of intersections and interactions and certainly um you know this is something that people have written about quite a lot is that some of the heritage of ancient greece came down to us through islamic civilization now, so Avicenna, Averroes, these people were commentators of Aristotle. That has been exaggerated a little bit. The vast majority of Greek texts don't come through that route. The vast majority of Greek texts come through Western monasteries and they come through Byzantine civilization. Um, but there is, there is some influence on Islamic culture. Um, but then I think that when we're thinking about the West, we also have to remember that there are other civilizations even further afield, you know, Chinese civilization, Mesoamerican civilization. They, they don't bear any uh, impact from, uh, of the Greeks. So I think it is still sensible to speak, to think about the West as, as uh, a cluster of traditions, which interacts quite um, in, in a quite involved way with the, with the Islamic civilization, but uh,
0: isn't, quite, uh, isn't quite the same. So you wouldn't see perhaps the, the Muslim idea of the Ummah as being in some ways more a direct descendant of Athenian citizenship, than our Western concepts of citizenship.
1: I actually don't know that not much about UMA. Maybe you should t- tell me something. Oh.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds, I'll, leave that a, I'll, I'll leave that as a point for uh, a future discussion. Look, I have a final question for you. We have to start wrapping up, but I do have one big thing I want to know, which is which democracy do you prefer? Would you rather we have an ancient Athenian democracy, of course, modernized in appropriate ways, you know, with a full franchise. I understand no one wants to exclude anyone in today's society, but would you rather see ancient Athenian mechanisms for democratic decision-making or the kinds of mechanisms we have today?
1: No, I'm, I'm a proponent of uh, more Athenian-style democracy, to, to be honest. Um, I've just been reading uh, books by Rosalind Fuller, in defense of democracy beasts and gods and she lays out a plan she calls it fuller democracy because it's a pun on her name but i, I basically agree with that and the, the plan for that is just to have more citizen participation now as i think she she would admit and i would emphasize we have to be careful because the representative systems that we live in at the moment have been very successful in lots of ways so we don't want to just sort of wipe the slate clean and have something completely new overnight. But uh, luckily there are sensible people in the sort of claritarian community, people who are interested in sortition and they do experiments and they have citizens assemblies selected by lot. You can see how those things work out. And I think there are lots of really good objections against the, the way that those citizen assemblies are, are being done now, because often um, they sort of feed them information and then they, they take the view that, oh, the people that we selected, their views are going in the right direction which I always think is a little bit shifty. You should really just select people and then let them decide what they wanna decide, right? But so there are all these little things to work out with more sortition, with more referenda. But I think that um, to be perfectly honest, those are real democratic mechanisms. If we want, if we are Democrats, and we want and we think that we're in favor of popular power, then we need to start doing those things because at the moment, uh, what we have is much better than the alternatives but Russo is still correct that people don't actually have that much power in our current systems.
0: Okay, final question, I promise. Who would you ostracize?
1: Oh, I don't know if I want to comment on that. I'm not sure if I would ostracize anybody, to be honest. I mean, I think, um, because nowadays I I have too many sort of uh, post-liberal hang-ups about human rights. (laughs) I just don't think we should sort of cavalierly say you can't, no one should come into New Zealand. Well, okay, I guess we're doing that for other reasons. But You know, just to kick someone out of a country for 10 years uh, seems a bit much. Um, It's interesting how the the Athenians themselves stopped doing that after a certain point. They stopped ostracizing people. They didn't even ostracize many people in the fourth century BC. So it only was in in action for less than a century. Uh, And we don't really know why, but uh, those kinds of objections may have played some role.
0: Well, there are plenty of people I'd like to ostracize, but James, you are always welcome at the Center for Independent Studies. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks a lot, Salvatore.
0: Thanks also to Nico Malian our producer our executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver the director of the CIS is Tom Switzer I'm Salvatore Bobonis. and we will all be taking a short break for 2 weeks we will return on November 3rd with a new slate of guests you can find us then on on